Give your kitchen the upgrade it deserves with Clearview Cabinetry. Clearview Cabinetry starts as a kitchen built for now and grows with you as life changes. It's flexible by design with full access cabinet construction. So you can go from doors to drawers for storage that works when you need it. Get an appointment-free design consultation and explore all our cabinet options on display in our kitchen showroom and save big money now at Menards. Save big money at Menards. Well, hey, hey, kids. This is Howard Kalen here, that good-looking bearded guy from the Turtles and the Mothers of Invention. And you're listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party here on Pantheon Podcast. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, conversation, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Hello, dolls. This is Pamela DeBar here. You're listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party on Pantheon Podcasts. And thank you so much for joining us. Today, we have the fabulous Lindsay Parker. And I'm just going to read the back of her book that she wrote about my darling, Miss Mercy. It's called Permanent Damage. And here's what it has to say about Lindsay. Lindsay Parker is the music editor at Yahoo Entertainment and co-host of the daily Sirius XM volume show, Volume West. Considered an expert in music and pop culture, Parker is an online journalism award nominee and has written for all kinds of magazines. I'm not going to read them all, but including Rolling Stone and Mojo. She's appeared as a commentator for the ABC Netflix special, The Show Must Go On, The Queen and Adam Lambert Story, and and tons more. Um, That goes on and on and on. But she is also uh, uh, author of Careless Memories of Strange Behavior, My Notorious Life as a Duran Duran Fan. We'll hear more about that any minute now. And let's welcome Lindsay Parker, my friend, too. Hey, Lindsay. Well, today I have amazing, good friend of mine. How long have we known each other, Lindsay? At least 20 years. Is it really? Early, oh two, early 2000s for sure. Today I have Lindsay Parker on the show, and I'm thrilled to have her because, you know, we're good friends, but she also wrote my dear friend, Miss Mercy's book, um, Permanent Damage, which was also the title of the GTO's album that mercy titled and you know it's such a good book it's such good writing oh my god Lindsay! thank you well i gotta thank you because it's because of you that this happened i think like, well yeah you changed that both way. of our lives yeah i yeah. always wanted to write a book and i was always looking for like the right yeah subject yeah she she needed to have a book written yeah, about or by her so you know she, it, she was so thrilled you know for years she tried to get me to do it really oh yeah You're a little too close to it probably yeah not only that though <clears throat> i was already writing my own books and teaching classes and doing too much and i kept saying mercy you can do this you can do this but when you guys met it was kind of magical she respected you that's why she had to write with someone or tell her story directly to someone she really respected. Oh, thank you. It's interesting because writing this book gave me the bug to write another one. And I've put in my brain, like what other all female subjects from rock and roll be a good person. But I don't think I could replicate this experience because it would be completely different because Mercy and I were friends. I think we met in like 2012, started writing the book in 2017 with kind of 
like I did everything wrong. Like when people ask me advice about how to do a book, I'm like, not like me, like be friends with someone for five years, write the entire book before you have a deal, get yeah. a deal without writing <laughs> yeah. a proposal. Yeah. Like I didn't do anything right. It just sort of like was meant to be, I guess. It was so meant to be. And it, it meant so much to Mercy. For those of you who don't know, Mercy passed just a little over a year ago. Eight days after signing the contract for this book. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing timing of course which you know i believe in cosmic timing because i'm one of those people <laughs> i know <laughs> i think so. she was too in her own kind of more like fatalistic yeah, way. yes she was she was i mean that was why she whenever i would ask like how did you survive i mean you know i'm, I'm it's tragic that she died at 71 but there's plenty of people who thought she would have died at 21 or yes, whatever or so 31 or 41 i mean it just went on and on until she got sober so that was the ironic kind of through line of this book is how she had survived so much stuff and you know it's ironic that she died of a relatively benign natural yes. way and not yes. all the ways people might have yes, thought yes exactly but every time I asked her like how are you still here she just sort of believed it was her fate to still be here like she'd been given a number she saw yeah. everyone was given a number and <laughs> yeah. she got a number that was later than some of her peers yeah know? and and it is a miracle I mean this book is so full of unbelievable stories of her life She's lived nine lives or more, 12 lives or something. I mean, it's just fantastic. And you somehow capture her her voice and her manner while at the same time, your writing shines <laughs> through. No, because you. you're so good at Aww. descriptions. Thank you. I mean, it's, it is her voice in the sense it's yeah. like two years and probably like 60 to 80. I wouldn't, I don't know exactly, but hours. Yeah. Of yeah interviews with her but then I sort of had to kind of make it oh, make sense I, oh I know I'm going to <laughs> Any, a similar thing anyone who knows her is like wow <laughs> I didn't realize having <laughs> never written a book before I, I there were moments where I was like what did I get myself into but I'm so glad I did it yeah now that it's out were it's there done. ever was there ever a time where you said I just can't go on with this you no. can be real with me. No, no, there was never a time like that. But I, there were many times I sort of, as you know, Mercy was very impatient to get the book out. And I understand now that maybe it was because she kind of had that fear that she might not live to see it come out, which yeah. I was in complete denial about because having her overcome, if you've read the book, or of course, you know, all of these other brushes with death. Like yeah. even when she told me she, you know, she'd gotten kind of a damning diagnosis at the end, I didn't really believe it. Or she'd been given without going into too much detail, like anywhere from four months to two years. Yeah, yeah. And I immediately, my brain immediately went to, to, to two, two years. Two years. Best case yeah. scenario. Yeah. I just didn't really, I thought she was like Keith Richards or whatever. She, well, or she Betty kind of White. was. She kind of was in that, you know, she had lived a wild and crazy life and lived to be in her seventies. It's yeah. incredible. So to answer your question, there was never a time when I wanted to give up, but there were many times where I just kind of had to be like, you know, that deadline mercy that I told you that I thought I'd have the book done by it's, that's not, because yeah. I had two jobs. and Yeah, I know. And, and we've, we're going to talk about you too, of course. <laughs> well, that was one of the but, reasons why I didn't pursue a deal until I had like a pretty rough draft that I would say is about 75% of what the final book ended up being. Right. There were revisions, but until I had something that was almost done because I knew if I had a deal, as you know, they would give you a deadline of when they wanted it. And I just was like, I don't know how much time is going to take. Yeah, exactly. I'm on one. I am mm -hmm. on a deadline. You know. So I know. I mean, I've had... This is my sixth deadline for a book. Yay, me. <laughs> and I work well with deadlines usually, but with this one, it's just like, like I said, a little bit off more than I could shoot, realizing yes. <laughs> that it was going to take a long time to get all the stories out of her for a couple of reasons. Her memory is actually really good. It was. I just think she was very suppressing of certain things. And she always had this, it's in the book, but you know, a lot of times when she'd be talking about certain very traumatic things, I would be like, well, how'd that make you feel? Or how'd you process it? Or how'd you overcome that? And she'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'd be, yeah, I just got past her. No big deal. I'm like, I know. But it is a big deal. I, I go, and that's not good copy for a book. I know. Just be like, this happened yes. and I moved on. You the emotions to... had to be there. And, and somehow you got them out of her. I mean, I. As best I could. Because she, she, she still held in quite a bit because I know her so well. Mm -hmm. She Something she could not even go to that place. There was the biggest struggle I had with the book and I had conversations with a couple people who read early drafts of it was making her likable. Cause if you knew her, you mm, loved her. Yeah. 
but most people did not everybody <laughs> yeah i mean she wasn't for everyone you know she and she didn't give a shit if, yeah, yes. either but yes. you know obviously there were a lot of people who loved her the fact that she had so many people caring for her at the end of her life yes and, and yes. you know bending over backwards is evidence of if how lovable she could be and she was fiercely loyal to her friends you know champion of her friends oh, including yeah. me yeah i mean totally sometimes her facebook page was practically like a fan page for me. to you i know and she and, was like that with music. She liked, she was like yes, that with her friends. So she yes, was a lovable yes, person, but because yes. of her flat affect and the fact that she tended to not always express a lot of remorse for things she had done right. wrong or, or people she'd hurt and also sort of just kind of compartmentalizing and suppressing. Yes. Yes. Like, on, like a lot of people have on do. the page, it could kind of make her seem like a little brusque. And I was like, and a couple of people said to me, like, you need to make her more likable if the protagonist of your, yeah. the heroine yeah. of your book and, isn't and likable. No one's going to come away for this book, recommending it to anyone else. So that was my biggest struggle is right. to kind of, to make would, her likable. I would tell people, the two people that read the book and sort of gave me that feedback. I was like, she has a heart of gold. She's really like a good person. They're yeah. like, you need to get that yeah. more in the book. That was my biggest struggle. Hopefully I and, did. And, and, and how did you do that? Well, did you go back over, I'm just, just as a writer myself, I'm just, did you go back over the entire manuscript and find places that you could lighten her up? Or how did you do that? The main feedback that I got regarding why she wasn't coming across as likable on the page as she was in real life was stuff pertaining to her relationship with her son, Lucky. Okay. Yeah. That was the main thing is because she has kind of this attitude to be like, can't we just move on from the trauma of the past? Yeah. That yeah. Um, uh, one of the people that read the book was someone who had had a, a, a fraught relationship with his parents, mm. or one of his parents, and mm. uh, basically said, well, maybe I'm being oversensitive and this mm. is triggering me because it doesn't seem like she cares about her son. I'm like, she loved her son. Yes. Her son was the light of her life. Yes. And yes. he's like, well, never mind. Maybe it's just triggering me. I'm like, no, oh. but if it's triggering you, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people who have issues with their parents, yeah. abandonment issues, neglect issues, abuse issues, addiction issues. And yes. if you're yes. feeling this way, a lot of people. So I, I kind of went back over those chapters. And actually one thing that helped is I already had the draft done um, after Mercy passed, a friend of mine uh, had some of her personal effects that had been collected from her apartment mm. and texted me. It was someone who knew one of her neighbors right. and uh, said, do you want, it was clothes and things like that. And uh, they, you know, it was during COVID. So they said, I'm just going to drop it off during your, on your front porch or whatever. And I was going through it, getting emotional. And I found a bunch of diaries from the nineties like that. I, she never never gave me didn't show me shit so i like opened them and oh. there was a lot of stuff about lucky in that okay good and yeah. about her i remember you expressing me remorse yeah. crying when he'd come to visit her and leave wishing she could take back certain things and i pretty much took passages from that diary verbatim and put them into the book good and i was like again if you're talking about fate yeah the book deal yes. was like i had only maybe a couple weeks to put in any revisions when wow. those diaries fell into my lap. And that really kind of filled in the gaps there. And after that, I, um, and I, the person who had given me that specific feedback, I took pictures of the pages of certain patches of the book and texted to him. And he was like, yes, yeah, this, good. this is what no, you need. He's is, like, this is yeah. illustrating the point. And it was in her own words. So I yeah. felt very comfortable putting it in. So that, that was great. That was like her from beyond. Yeah. Handing that to you. I think so. Sure. I do. And that, that was a good friend of hers who did that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that was a real meant to be thing. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it because, you know, when, you know, obviously, you know, Mercy lost a lot of her uh, personal effects over the course of her life because <laughs> yes. of her being so transient and uh, having a couple emotional breakdowns. But, you know, when we started the book, I asked her to give me, and she didn't have a lot of her diaries because Shuggy had ripped some, all her 70s diaries yes. up. Un unbelievable. And that I know your diaries news. helped you with, I'm with so Dan. much. So and much. I was just like, <laughs> why don't you have these? And I asked her, you know, anything you have, any diaries, any notes, letters, and she gave me some things, but she claimed she didn't have a lot of it. And then after she dies, these like 90s diaries, wow. very shortly after she got sober. I wonder sober, if she'd forgotten that she even had them. I don't know. They were like in a a duffel bag left on my front porch with like a bunch of her clothes and and oh and uh cinnamon who was one of her caretakers found a lot of photos 
because yeah. that was the other thing is, you know, obviously there's a photo insert in the book and that was a real struggle because I had to organize that after Mercy passed. And oh, she also lost a lot of her photos. And then yeah, Cinnamon texts me and is like, I have a bunch of her photos here. You want a lot yeah. of things like that. I do believe they were like such messages. photos. Yeah, I do believe they, some of it was messages from beyond. Of course. From, she, beyond, from her. Because she was so involved in wanting her life to be told, her story to be told. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she was so proud of various parts of her life. And then she wound up homeless for many years with mm-hmm. a real bum of a husband, mm-hmm. which, you know. Yep. And, and it was, that was a hard thing to get her to talk about. She didn't yeah. want that in the book. And I... Uh, you know, I think I, I think I've told you this before. I think I've definitely said in other interviews is when I asked her kind of early on uh, after we've been working together for a few months, like what her, I don't know if the word agenda is, but like what she wanted people to get out of the book. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I don't know. I just wanted to be fun. And yeah. I was like, hmm, you think your life was fun. The thing is, <laughs> she, she did. She Despite does. all this horrible shit that, and there's a lot of, you know, trigger warning stuff in the book. There's a lot of yeah. hard shit in the book. She did not look back on the book and go like, oh, my life sucked. And she definitely didn't want her people she to didn't take want that. that to come through. I but know. at the same time, I told her, you know, the heavy stuff, the hard stuff, that's actually, to me, a lot more interesting or as interesting as the fun stuff with Graham Parsons or the fun stuff with Tobias, yeah. like the stuff. And a survived. lot of that was dark too. He was shooting speed and Graham would die. You know, she, mm-hmm. she had to bring him back to, to life from heroin one well, night. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was, that was like, you know, one God. of the, concerns I had is you know I think I've told you that at one time she wanted to call the book I'm with the band I know well I told her electric she boogaloo no I, just I was told like her, no. no 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 well, first of all That's... why ride on the coattails yeah. of another yeah. Gio when totally she's got her own story to tell yeah, but I yeah. also said like you know your story's not like Pamela's the two of you couldn't be more opposite best friends yeah but I mean just in terms of your backgrounds and how you were raised what drove you you were like more like sexually romantically driven she was more like she just wanted to kind of be like a music historian she just wanted to be respected for being some like she's like i've said before she should have gone to a and r she just she really yeah. was more into oh, yeah. well we both uh, should that. have really too i mean but yeah we both, you totally should have. we both could hear great great music before mm-hmm. a lot of other people could and but your uh, personalities and lives are so different and what drove you was so different and yes and yes. where you ended up was so different i was just like don't make people it's misleading to the reader to think it's going to be i'm with the band yeah too. yes exactly so, and permanent damage is perfect she was <laughs> yes, she no wonder was. she came up with that title <laughs> but she was proud of it or you know she she wore her whatever her damage with oh with such a bit pride. Of pride oh yeah, yeah. I, you know i used to when she was homeless with that other husband i wouldn't even mention his name mm-hmm. um yeah he's you sucked. know I, I would find her under the bridge where she was living and with her cart. And she was always in an upbeat mood. And that's in I the mean, book. She, she claimed she wanted to be homeless or at least chose that She life. was okay with it. Mm-hmm. She, she, she was really into crack and, you know, angel dust and every kind of mm-hmm. thing at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's what she was willing to go through to live that life. And, you know, you can understand how her son would have, would have upset him for a while yeah. there. You know, I mean, Lucky did go through a lot with her. But, but it, she loved him fiercely. But it is amazing. Unconditionally. Not spoiler alert, whatever, to ruin the ending of the book. But, you know, she was very hard headed and strong minded. So that got her into a lot of bad situations. But when she decided she wanted to be sober, like that was oh, yeah. it. She didn't have I to know. go to rehab. She I didn't know. relapse. It was just like, oh, I'm done with this. Next. Well, I, she, I feel I had a lot to do with that. Yeah. I mean, I'd helped her through the years and then I needed help from with her from mm-hmm. to help me with my mother who mm-hmm. who was living with me at the time and I and I had to work I had to do things so Mercy came three times a week and took care of my mom and they got so close they were so hysterical together they would bicker and smoke cigarettes she'd push her around <laughs> in the wheelchair and they, hang, hang, hang. it was hysterical they could have had out. their own sitcom I know, they, they but that's really a great redemption have. story it comes towards the end of the book is that yeah, you giving yeah. her that trust and taking care of your mother for yes. god's sakes like sort of gave her the inspiration she needed to realize i'm going to be a good person now yeah i'm going to get things right you know that's that was a major trust to put into her and during that time too our friend chuck wine who she always adored mm-hmm. almost kind of worshipped mm-hmm. you know he put her in Ra- rainbow bridge the movie mm-hmm. with hendrix and she hung out with the hendrix and, and what a what a story that is in the book mm-hmm. but he he 
thought her story too was worth telling. He was doing a documentary on her at that time. Where's that footage? I have some of it. I have some of it. She left it in a tape, but I have it somewhere. That's good to know. I feel like, you know, I've often thought, I know you've had conversations about, I'm with the band over the years about, you know, making into a film or yeah. something for the screen. Her story is too intense, don't you think? Well, I've, you know, obviously I think, I don't know how I would love to see Permanent Damage become a movie or a series or whatever, but, and I think it could be, but the same struggle that I had to tell a linear story or semi, no one, yeah, semi-linear story. It hops around, of episodic. course, the same way her, yeah. Yeah. yeah, her life was very episodic. She mm-hmm. actually, that was the thing is when I was interviewing her, you know, I, again, when I said I bit off more than I could chew, I really thought like we were going to have like, today we'll talk about, <laughs> uh, you know, when you join the GTOs, today we'll sit down oh, yeah. and talk about, well, you know, your marriage to Shuggy. Today oh, we'll talk oh. about your childhood. And I guess like most people, but she's this to the extreme, she would skip around so much in the narrative. Like she'd be talking about something that happened in 67. Then she'd start talking about something else and be like, wait, did this happen in 60? No, this was 92. I'm like, what the hell? So. How did you get around that? I eventually read the transcripts. I mean, it must have taken much longer than it should have. It did. That's to my point that I made earlier. Yeah. Is that when I realized that it was going to be kind of impossible to keep her on track to a certain (laughs) subject or date every time we sat down to talk, I just kind of had to let her brain go to where it was going, where, you know, her memories were. And then after I would go back and be like, I need more information about this. And she would complain, like, why are we, you asking me about this? You already did. Yeah. Oh boy. And then once I had the transcripts, yeah, I spent probably about two weeks just like copy and pasting, putting them into documents. Oh, of course. I'm surprised it wasn't longer than that. (laughs) San Francisco, Hollywood, punk years. So anyway, I got into a relatively linear fashion, but yeah, it is. I, when we were, she said there was a Willie Nelson autobiography that she liked because it was episodic in its chapters. Well, he and had, there were, each chapter was that story of whatever it was. Right. I, I know that. Book. And so she really liked that book and she yeah. specifically cited that. And we agreed that given the nature of how she, her memories are processed, yeah. that that was the best approach. So yeah, if something was to be made for the screen for her, it would whether it was within a film or it was a series, it would probably have to be episodic because yeah. her life really was episodic. When you look yeah, at the fact well, that she had lived all those lives, I, separate lives, it seemed like. Yeah. I joked to her that if she had a better memory, it could have been just a memoir about her time in San Francisco. Yes. Just a memoir about her time in the punk scene, in the punk scene, doing everybody's in the GTOs. <laughs> just a memoir of her crack years, just a memoir of her sugar marriage. Yeah. yeah. She really did lead. She was a zealot. She was kind of just the Memphis thing. Like, yeah, her so, Memphis story is incredible. Yeah. Al Green, she wound up with. I mean, mm-hmm. for, for those of you who haven't heard my Mercy episodes, thank God I have two Mercy podcasts. Mm-hmm. So please listen to those. It's you'll never be the same. <laughs> I mean, I do. Yeah. Like I said, so it was episodic in that, you know, she had these chapters of her life that were almost disconnected from each other, but they were all great stories in their own right. It was almost the book almost ended up being like a collection of short stories, yeah. but yeah, stranger kind of, than fiction. No, you, you somehow made it flow. Thank you. Yeah. It's it. I was so impressed with your writing. Wow. That means so much to me well, that you, wow. for two reasons. One, you're a great writer and you wrote one Thank of the you. most acclaimed memoirs rock memoirs of all time and i don't know if you know this but like my sister and i went to see you read from at largo when we were like your teenagers oh no i didn't and we got know it that. autographed oh and i still have the paperback autographed copy oh, this, was, so this cool. would have been maybe 89 90 something you were reading with danny sugarman at largo yeah. it was wow. that night yeah you remember wow, that night? of course so yeah, i loved it so there's that that was before you and i knew each other and became friends so just at for a writer of but also you live this story alongside mercy with your own so and you knew her better than most so if you like the book like i did my job oh i love the stuff she says about me in there (laughs) she adored you i know but it's funny stuff Uh, it's it's really good it's really freaking good you guys read the book permanent damage yeah okay what i think it's break time let's take a little break and we're back with lindsey parker no, I'm going to talk about you. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, I have already told them about, you know, given your whole list of acclaimed, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing right now? 
Well, right now I'm working two jobs. My main job, my you know day job is I'm the music editor of Yahoo Entertainment. I have been at Yahoo since 2001. Wow. I was seven when I started. Uh, yeah, yeah. Child prodigy. <laughs> I've been there. I mean, the fact that I've worked for anywhere for that long, particularly the internet or a website that has you know, changed hands with consolidations and sales. That's crazy. That's a long then, time. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I kind of actually started a company called launch in 97 launch music that got bought by Yahoo. Okay. So I basically worked okay. for the, in the internet space since 97. And that was my first editorial job. So like, I kind of grew up with the internet, you yeah. know, yeah, professionally, yeah. but then I also do a, um, uh, a radio show on Sirius six and volume, right? Volume is channel one Oh six. The best way to describe what volume is, is a talk radio station for music. So it's like what sports radio is to sports. It's okay. that. Mm-hmm. And that's a daily show. I host it with different people. I've hosted it with at times with your ex-husband, yes, Michael Bar, with Slim Jim Phantom, with those Davey are, Havoc. Yeah. Those were great shows. Yeah. And, uh, and I do a pod, I do, um, a podcast for Rhino records called totally eighties where we talk about different 80s topics. Yes. Uh, Michael's been on that once. He did. He was on the comebacks of the 80s. Oh, Because you know he had one with Power Station. Yes, he sure did. So, I mean, <laughs> I started off writing, but I just like, how did I get people to pay me to talk? I, I do that anyway, as you can see. <laughs> how did I get someone to actually pay me to talk? Uh, I'm living the dream, you know? Well, let's go way, way back then. Okay. Um, you know what? Like, what year did you graduate high school? You don't want to say that, but you've already, you've already told this. Well, okay. If you don't want to say it, Hey, I have to say I was how old I am because it's in my books, but, um, so I'm still kind of a little don't ask, don't tell about how I'm still a little weird about that. There's so much ageism in the business. How do you deal with that? You know, I, I am who I am. That's why mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not trying to make anyone think I'm 25. That was a joke <laughs> when I said I started working. So, I mean, it's obvious. I grew up okay. in the 80s. Okay, we don't have to know that. But I want to know, how, when did you get into music? And what was your oh, first, God. what was your like first crush, uh, musician crush? Okay, well, that's that's a good one. To, okay, I got into music because of the Monkees. They okay. were in reruns. I was watching yes. them in the 70s. I was a right. child of the 70s. I was kind of not aware, like the concept of what reruns were. I was not aware the Monkees were not a contemporary band. Right. They had broken up at this point for you know, somewhere between five and 10 years and that they'd all done their own thing. The Monkees was the first TV show I ever watched that wasn't like, I mean, I actually feel like it was a good TV show for kids, but it wasn't like a PBS show, wasn't Sesame Street or whatever. Yeah. And actually I realized that so much of me getting into music was connected to television because it was the Monkees and then it was MTV. I got MTV in 1982, changed my life. Yeah. So the Monkees were my first band I liked. The first record I ever got, I asked for it for either Christmas or my birthday, was the Monkees' Greatest Hits. That's the first vinyl record I ever owned. Well, what was your favorite song on there? Daydream Believer. Let's hear it! Oh, I could hide beneath the wind of the bluebird as she sings The six o'clock alarm would never And I ran, wiped the sleep out of my eyes. My shaven razor's cold, and it sings. Cheer up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean to a daydream believer? And of course. Now I actually being a little old, a lot older and knowing a lot more about music, all of the monkeys are awesome. And they all like any good band that had were everyone's famous in it, whether it's the Beatles or Duran Duran or Molly Crew, whoever Guns N' Roses or One Direction, they all contributed something. But now I kind of my favorite monkey is Mike Nesmith. Yeah, just recently. I know that must have been hard because he was like the cool, interesting, artsy one. But of course, when I'm a you know kindergartner my favorite my first crush is davy jones he was cute and petite and he had that little like axel rose proto axel rose dance and he had the perfect (laughs) hair 
And he was British. Yeah. And you know no. I'm an Anglophile. It, but that started real young with him, probably. With him. With him. Okay. The funny thing that's the thing that's really funny is so I liked the monkeys before the Beatles. And my mom was trying, you know, she she was very into music too. And she always was trying to educate me. And I remember when I was probably six years old, she tried to explain to me that the monkeys were a band that had been created for TV to sort of capitalize and be on the Beatles trend and right, be right, like, the, right. you know, Davy aside, be the American Beatles. Yeah. And she was trying <laughs> to explain this to me, but somehow, because, you know, I'm young and only process so much information. I somehow, my takeaway from that conversation was that the Beatles and the monkeys were enemies and you had to pick a side. Oh, so God, that's funny. Of course I'm team monkeys at that age because, you know, that was my first everything. So I was so, this shows you how like into music and like fiercely loyal I was even then. So I made picket signs that said, I hate the Beatles. Like put them on like a stick and marched around my living room, like protesting. And what were you, seven or eight or something? Not six. maybe six. Yeah. <laughs> so what was funny was, so I like had this in my mind that I hate the Beatles. And then I went to see, I know it's a terrible movie, but it did some good the Sgt. Pepper movie starring the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton. I know it's bad, but it was educational for me. I came home from seeing it. I had like the bubble gum cards. I was very into it. Asked my mom for the soundtrack. And my mom said, you know that all those songs are not Bee Gees and Peter Frampton oh, songs. Or oh. George Burns songs, or Steve Martin songs, or Alice Cooper songs. Yeah. You know that those are Beatles songs, this band you say you hate. So wow. I was like, okay. Well, I really liked it when the robot sang She's Leaving Home by the Beatles. I really liked it when, like, you know, Barry Gibbs sang, you know, A Day in the Life while, like, Peter Frampton's, like, jumping out a window because <laughs> Strawberry Fields is dead. You know, like, yeah. I was very into the narrative. And those are two of my favorite Beatles songs to this day. So I was like, I don't, she's like, I'm not going to get you the soundtrack. I'm going to get you the Sergeant The actual Beatles, Beatles. yeah. Although a lot of the songs in the movie are actually from Abbey Road, but that being said. So she gave me the beat, the Sgt. Pepper Beatles album and that yeah. the Beatles were the next band. I, I mean, obviously. you were so young to get that wrapped up in, in music. Yeah. Um, and Pretty were, much the minute I knew music was. So well, was, were your parents, did you have music playing all the time? Were they rock fans or? My mom, well, this is interesting is a lot of people I know have parents who turned them on to older music, yeah. music of their generation. I yeah. didn't have that. Like mm -hmm. most, uh, with the exception of what my mom buying me the Sgt. Pepper Beatles yeah, record. Yeah. I pretty much discovered any classic rock or music from before my time on my own, whether it was the Monkees, whether it was Led Zeppelin, the yeah. Beatles. Huh. My mom was very into contemporary music. All my memories of listening to music with her, like in the car, carpooling or whatever, was um, her listening to Top 40 radio. Okay. She was into the music I was into. When I was into Duran Duran, mm. she was into oh, Duran Duran. In okay. fact, what's really funny is, and this ties into, you know, it's all connected, is I grew up like you, I grew up in the Valley. I didn't grow up too far away from you. I grew up in Tarzana and Reseda. Yeah. <laughs> and um, oh. I remember one time my mom picking me up from school and she had Kiss FM or KIQ, one of the top 40 stations on. And she was cracking up hysterically. And I'm like, what's so funny? And she's like, this song that's on the radio, it's about where we live. And it was Valley Girl. Oh, by Frank Zappa. Oh, okay. That was oh, my gosh. introduction to Frank Zappa. But even at that age, I remember being like, just doesn't seem like a positive song. But then the, you know, for a little, mm -hmm. let's hear it. I want to hear that song right now. My darling Moon Zappa. So yeah, I was like, even at that age, I was like, huh. But of course that song made the Valley like the place to be for a yeah, hot minute. You know, there, was, there were Valley Girl, like there was the movie, which I love. And I love the Valley Girl movie. I still think it's Nicolas Cage's best work. Although I don't quite understand. There was no Valley Girl that I knew who wouldn't be 
stoked and the envy of all her friends to have a Hollywood boyfriend who looked like Nicolas Cage in 1983 yeah. with a muscle car, <laughs> driving over the hill, picking her up, taking her to the central to see the plimsolls play. No yeah. one would have thought that was uncool. That was my dream. By the time I got to my teenagers, all I wanted to do was go to Hollywood and, you know, having a hot boyfriend with a car was the goal. But anyway, um, my mom, to go back to what I was saying, she, she listened to a lot of top 40 music and still does. Her mm. favorite artists are like, you know, Coldplay and Bruno Mars and The Weeknd. And How she interesting. Loves, she huh. doesn't really ever listen to classic rock. Although a real fun story that I only recently found out, this shows you how much I am my mother's daughter. When my parents met in Lansing, Michigan, my dad ran a dance club. Mm. And she went over on, they met at a bar and he invited her to the club like during the day. And he said, "I'm my club is happening tonight. You want to come? She came over early and he had all these, four, he'd bought 2045s for like uh, in bulk yeah and she was going through them and get recommending 45s that he should play oh okay and she took aside i don't remember i could tell you later but she took aside two songs that were ballads and said you shouldn't play ballads at your clubs people want to dance they want to dance fast these two 45s you don't need and he's like all right and she goes can i have them if you're not huh. going to play them and he huh. said no and he supposedly liked her, so I don't know why. And she's like, come on, just let me have them. And he said, no, I might want them later. So she stole them. She put oh. them under her desk. <laughs> what are they? So from what I recall, the 245s were Since I Fell For You by Lenny Welch. Right. And I Yes, I'm Ready by Barbara Mason. Yes, I'm Ready. That song. And yeah, that's a great sexy song. Let's hear that. Why not? My mom was a pop girl or, you know, a contemporary music girl. One of the big, um, you know, mythologies of my family is that when she was 14 and living in Boston, she and her friend took like a nine hour bus ride to Philadelphia to dance on a American bandstand. Oh, I believe cool. Neil Sadatka was the, uh, <laughs> was the musical guest. She said Love Dick Clark him. was a dick. He wasn't nice to the kids, she said. Oh. But oh. anyway, oh. so she was. And so I'm very much my mother's daughter, but she didn't really make a big effort to try to educate me about music of her generation and be like mm -hmm. oh you're so other than the Beatles story told like and maybe because you know kids naturally uh, you might not have been like this with your parents but kids naturally tend to think that their parents are like uncool and I think maybe she you find out later that they actually were cool but like I think yeah. maybe she thought if she was like oh this is what you should listen to I would yeah, rebel would. against that yeah and sure sure and I do that with my that own sense niece who's 14 and super into music i never try you know i never really try to be like oh you should this listen. is what's really good you know <laughs> like kids discover their own taste and she really encouraged it. i mean my mom you know bought me concert tickets drove me dropped me off at concerts gave me money for a t-shirt what snacks. was your first concert it was duran duran oh uh -huh. and Forum. you're still a duranny right super. i mean after <laughs> i mean after the monkeys and the beatles duran duran was absolutely mm-hmm and they were my boy band. I've often said, I mean, they weren't a boy band, but they yeah. were my version of that. And I've they often were your said, boys. well, I've often said that I'm, I feel so lucky that just by virtue of, you know, the time I was alive, that my quote unquote boy band was an actual band, like a band yeah. that like uh -huh. started in the Birmingham club scene, played their own, own instruments, wrote their own songs, had impeccable influences like Bowie and Roxy Music and and Chic and the Sex Pistols, because if I'd been a little older, my boy band could have been, you know, the Osmonds or something. If I'd been a bit younger, <laughs> it could have been New Kids on the Block. Right. And no, just to those artists at all. Yeah, but I, I was at the perfect time. I got MTV when I was in junior high with all these weird, exotic British bands. And, you know, the first video I ever saw by Duran Duran was Hungry Like the Wolf, although mm -hmm. The Chauffeur is my favorite song by them. It's actually my top five favorite songs of all time. And Mark Ronson has said it is the best song of all time. And he's not 
totally wrong. Well, but we, we have to hear that. Mm-hmm. I want to hear why Chauffeur is Lindsay's favorite song. Let's let's find out. Out on the top lanes, the glides are moving. Sun drips down, bedding heavy behind The front of your dress all shadowy lined And the droning engine throbs in time With your beating heart I mean, it's just so sexy. And also, you have to remember, Rio is actually the first album I bought with my own money. Okay. Not first album I, my own. I always ask that in writing class. What was the first album you bought with your own money? It's one of them. I bought it at the same time I bought um, Two Rye by Dex's Midnight Runners and The Lexicon of Love by ABC. So I don't need to tell you what year I graduated from high school because <laughs> you can figure it out if I was buying that in junior high. Uh, now, haven't you, you've met all of Duran Duran now, right? Other than Andy Taylor, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've interviewed all of them. Um, Probably the most I've interviewed. I've interviewed all of them, but probably John Taylor the most, which is fine because he was my guy. He was my guy. (laughs) That must have been so thrilling. You know, if you think about growing up and your favorite band and then Mm -hmm. getting to meet them all. I mean, I went through that myself, Mm -hmm. but you did it in a more professional way. (laughs) (laughs) However you get there is how you get there, Grandma. Yeah, I mean, I I wound up interviewing a lot of people of too, but but I mean that must have been a very exciting. Tra- how, how do you maintain your cool? You have a very good way of maintaining your cool. May, that you might teach us all something well, by telling us how you do that. I'll tell you. I'll tell the shortest version of this story. Is that my uh, as much as Duran Duran and the Beatles and the Monkees mean you know a lot to me. My favorite band of all time is The Cure, mm-hmm. and I have literally said that my life changed the night I met them when I was. 14 years old Hmm. okay so i'll just cut to the chase but i basically it's a long story but i'll get to the part that's important is that through a weird knowing a friend of a friend of a friend i somehow ended up with backstage passes at Irvine meadows when they did their head on the door tour and the uh I just was flabbergasted. I didn't know until I got there that I was getting the passes. Like we got there and they're like, here's some extra laminates. I'm like, what? So where, you know, when you're that young, you don't realize now, you know, there's different versions of backstage, you know, there's, yeah. we were in the hospitality area. We were not like in Robert Smith's. Right. Of course I did. It didn't exist after but a certain period of time. When you're 14, 15, you don't know this stuff. So yeah, we're hanging on this hospitality area and it was a different era because they're like, you know, giving us beer and drinks. No one's carding us, whatever. We're living the dream, but we're waiting for, the cure to come out yeah hours go by it's thinning out the cure not up obviously coming out and uh it's like literally just me and my three friends they're actually starting to sweep up around there and my friends are like <laughs> let's go but i see that there's a you know a, a bus outside like which i'm assuming is their tour bus so I'm yeah like, it, does, I, it seems like they're still inside let's not leave let's stay just a little bit longer it's just us and then the cure all walk out including Lowell Tohurst, who I'm now friends with. He is very amused by this story. And Lowell was, uh, gave me a lot of advice about this book, by the way, Mercy book. But anyway, they all walk out and I immediately, like we all kind of gasped, like, oh my God, the cure's here. And they started to actually, they kind of shrugged and started to make a beeline for us. I, I'm amazed they did that instead of turning around and leaving. Yeah. They were like, oh, there's like, we waved at them and they started oh. to walk over and they like pulled up chairs and we hung out with them for about an hour. I have photos of it. Everything. Oh my God. It was amazing. But I remember as they like walked over, this is why I'm telling you this story in answer to your question. Um, I said, just stay calm, stay calm. Like, and then a year later they came out again and I got wind of where they were staying in the Sunset Marquis Hotel. And I went over there, took two hours on the RTD bus to get out there. There was like 10 Cure fans waiting across the street. We waited for five hours. And the Cure's limousine pulled up. And when the Cure came out, because they were going to go to LAX, we kind of waved like we wanted to meet them. And they, you know, and I just, again, I said to them both times, I said, stay calm. If you scream, freak out, 
start like going, oh my God, I love you so much. Like, you know, act like Beatlemania. Yeah. They're going to get, they're not going to come over and sit with yeah. you at the table or, yeah. or get out of the limousine and walk across the street to sign autographs. So they're going to be like, okay, these people are crazy. Yeah. I was just, somehow I knew even at 14 backstage at Irvine Meadows, was like, just act like you're supposed to be there. We weren't really supposed That's to That's exactly there. it. You act like you're supposed to, to be there. As if. Act calm. <laughs> act like having your favorite band two feet away from you is something that just happens to you every day. Yeah. And I have to say, and I've told Robert Smith this later, I told him all about, I didn't really, I didn't tell him about the time standing for him, so him but I told him about, <laughs> don't do that. Cause I, well, I don't think he would have minded. I was what, 15 at the time. But yeah, like, yeah. I did tell him about the Irvine Meadows thing. And I said, you know, how it actually really changed my life. Cause he was the first celebrity I ever met. Yeah. And the fact, and I met him twice within the course of a year at an impressionable age. And the fact that they treated us like human beings, like yeah. sat with us, talked with us, shared cigarettes with us, shared beer with us. incredible though. Asked, I mean, you know, inside we, you were just bubbling over, I'm sure. Robert Smith was asking me, they were going to Disneyland the next day for the first time. Robert Smith's super into Disneyland. You might no. not think that if you don't know much about the cure. I'd love to they go have with that. him to Disneyland. Oh my God, that would be living. The <laughs> but I was like giving him advice. I actually remember telling him, make sure you go to the Haunted Mansion. Of course I would tell Robert Smith. <laughs> yes, yes, but of course. They were, I mean, they must have realized we were young or whatever, but they treated us like equals. And I remember coming home that night and throwing everything out in my closet that wasn't black and pretty much right. you know, ch- changing everything about my life. But I remember, I remember being like, I like this feeling. I like this feeling of being in an inner circle, like sitting backstage with a band, talking with them like normal people. And I think that actually directly led to what I ended yeah. up doing is yes. I want to be part of this in some way. But yeah. somehow I knew whether you're interviewing someone or just talking with someone at a party, just act fucking calm. You can go in your car and bite your fist and scream yeah, later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But just act calm and then they'll let their guard down and talk with you. And that's and I've interviewed so many of my heroes. I actually just recently interviewed John Taylor for the fabulous Duran Duran album that came out in 2021, Future Pass. Mm-hmm. And it was on Zoom, but you know, we saw each other. And when and of course I was wearing like way more makeup. I'm like, oh, just this satin blouse like I'm all done up <laughs> of course but when I got on the zoom thing he recognized me and he goes hey Lindsay looking good sister and I'm like I can't believe my 12 year old self will be freaking out I do that, that John too. Taylor I, I just still, told me I look yeah, good I still but go through that with certain people I it's a it's a it's a I, fine I, line yeah, you know it, like yeah. I always want to act enthusiastic and and tell someone that I'm interviewing that I'm like super excited to talk with them or meet them it's an honor yeah but I don't want to like yeah seem like you know um you learned that so young. You're lucky you learned that so very young. I, yeah. But, you know, somehow instant, I had that I inside me, too, because when I went to see the Beatles first time, every girl around me was screaming and falling over and fainting and yelling and screaming. You couldn't even really hear the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I just stood there and watched them. Yeah. And I was Took waiting for Paul to see me. That's all I cared about. And he wasn't going to see he me. He was your John Taylor. Yell, yes. Oh, he sure was. Yes. John Taylor was my Paul McCartney. <laughs> And I one. just, you know, I swear to God, you saw me. I was only in the fifth row. So, sure and I was did. the only one standing still, right? Did you ever tell him about that later? No. And I never got a chance to really chit chat with Paul. I met him, but I never really, I was, I, and I've got to tell you, I was a nervous wreck inside. Mm-hmm, of course. But you and I was 65 or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's a fine line between, I don't, <laughs> oh, I mean, obviously boy. you're not, I, I've talked with other journalists. I talked with one journalist who said you should never tell someone you're interviewing that you're like this massive fan or you should never say something like after oh when I was 14 or 15 I met you yeah I don't really believe that as long as you no I think I mean you're not as long as you're handling yourself now right this journalist who told me that basically said if you do that you're you're creating an imbalance of power that you're not on the same playing field I'm like there's already an imbalance yeah of course yes John Taylor I'm me. <laughs> He's the celebrity. There's all oh, already funny. like not, but I, it's just a, it's just an instinct I have is like act calm. Don't freak out, but show like, show oh, your fan. Yes, because yes. I think if you interview someone and they know you're a longtime fan, they at least know, you know, your shit. I gush too. And I get Gushing's all fine. prettied up. Like when I mm-hmm. had John Doe on recently, I love, him. I made sure to get all prettied up and I gushed like a crazy person. I, I I, <laughs> I interviewed him recently and told him about the time that even though I just said that my 
parents, especially my mom, were very understanding about taking me to show. I've told him this story and he got a kick out of it is I guess because I went to most of like new wave and goth and, yeah. and as the LA scene started to evolve, like heavy metal shows. Um, I hadn't really been to too many punk shows. And I guess when my parents dropped me off at like a show by like the cure, the mopey people they saw outside didn't freak them out. One time X were playing Cal state Northridge, which I was really excited about because I didn't really have to twist my parents' arms to drive me there because yeah. it was so close yes. to where I lived. Yes. But when they pulled into the parking lot, it was all people who looked like punks from like postcards, you yeah. know, like Liberty <laughs> yeah. spikes, yeah, yeah. you know, and Mohawks and chains and like chains going from the nose to the to yes. the ear and my yes. mom's like what the hell is this <laughs> who are these people she thought they look dangerous yeah and she's like you are not getting out of the car and i was like oh, it's fine mom it's fine and she's like stay in the car i'm like i'll see you later and that you know this was before cell phones and stuff so i just like the car was practically moving i did <laughs> she was about to put like the childproof locks on i like jumped out and ran into the, with my ticket in hand yeah ran into csun before like they had a chance to stop me yeah and so john yeah. joe got a kick out of like of all the bands that my that my parents drove me to see and dropped me off at x was the only one that freaked them out <laughs> so i don't mind sharing like childhood yeah, stories oh, yeah, sure. just to show yeah. you know and there is that trepidation of like oh am i gonna make this person seem old if i say i saw them in junior high or high school but you, you know, know what? what john doe doesn't care yeah, he looks great too. He's what, 68? Oh my God, is he hot or what? He's a fine wine, that guy. Oh my but, God. And you Dave know. Alvin too. I felt the same way interviewing mm-hmm. Dave. I was like, okay. You go way back with him. Him and Mercy knew each other real well. I know. I know. Real well. Well, well, I didn't know him back then. She knew one of the Alvins well. I became a fan about 20 years ago. So it was oh, okay. solo stuff. Mm. I just, and I of course love the blasters. But, you know, when I have a hot man on, I always make sure I look good, even if it's Zoom. Oh my yeah. God. I know. It just gives you confidence. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to, I, I guess I just learned at a young age to act calm, but and not freak out. But still a fan, you know. But they're still they're show doing it because they want fans. I mean, nothing's wrong with. Why that. are we in this business? Yes, if you try to play it too cool, it's 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 fake, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I if I think, you know, like uh, it's not me kissing ass or buttering up, but if like someone's coming on and it's a big honor have them on the show i will completely be like that. thank yeah, you so much for your time it is but like i i interviewed steve perry recently mm-hmm. he doesn't do too many interviews he was you know a recluse for 18 or so years yeah i think steve perry is one of the greatest rock vocalists male rock vocalists of all time my first kiss was to don't stop believing and i fucking told him that in the interview well, that's and fun. he loved it. He's like, "Who was it with? Where were you?" And then <laughs> oh, he started telling a story about his first kiss. Oh, in a excellent, car. excellent. But you know, I completely just started off being like, "It is an honor to talk with you. I think you're one of the greatest rock vocalists of all time." You know, I don't think it's a problem I as long either. as you're just not like, "Oh my God, I want to like marry you," or yeah. like, you know. <laughs> oh God, I've thought that about a couple of people. <laughs> um, so okay, so we're we're running out of time a little bit. I hate that, That's but fine. but I want to ask you um, about: Did you have any female heroes, Madonna. musical heroes, and the Go Go's? Madonna, you're making a gag face. You don't like Madonna. I'm really surprised with all her sex positivity and fearlessness that you're not a Madonna fan. I've never been a Madonna fan, musically just, or just musically. You know, I admire her. You might her as a person. Yes, for yeah. all the different things she's accomplished. But I just don't like, you know, either like someone's voice or yeah, not. Yeah, well, I'm, I'll, I love her, but I'll be the first person. She's not, obviously, she's not Mariah Carey or Whitney Houston or um, Celine Dion or Adele or any of these kind of like power singers. What I really, I mean, there's, I mean, we don't have enough time for me to talk about how much I love her. Okay, I well, mean, well, well what, what about her inspired you as a woman is what I'm trying to get at. Well, I mean, a lot of it, you know, I am a child of MTV. I discovered Madonna through MTV. So it was a lot of her style. I like the fact that she was very sexy, but I'm talking about like her early days. I'm talking like the first two albums. I'm not, you know, obviously she went through a lot of style incarnations, but I liked the fact that she just looked kind of like a, a street urchin i you know that like was dressed in i rags. liked her early stuff yeah i like i her. loved her look in desperately seeking susan i liked that she was just kind of a badass my first introduction to her was actually on a show on mtv called irs is the cutting edge mm-hmm. which was a show that played alternative music mm-hmm. and also a feature and i think new york magazine about what was going on in the village in the early 80s because you have to remember she came from like this kind of scrappy like punk disco beginning her first show she ever did was opening for a certain ratio from manchester i think mm. at danceateria it, huh. her, and so like she was 
unlike a lot of people who like who would later day pop females who would uh cite her as influence she was very self-made and um i think what i liked about her is and i mean this is i'm saying this in with the in the warmest hearted way she was pretty very pretty but there were prettier girls out there. She was a good singer, but there were better singers out there. She was a good dancer, but there were better dancers out there. <laughs> she had a nice body, but in, you know, until she got some money and started working all the time, she had a kind of normal body. The thing was, you know, she had a whole tour called Blonde Ambition. She just was going to fucking make it happen. Oh yeah, she's going to take that. whatever Very raw determined. asset she had, and she was yeah. going to make it happen. She was very determined, and she just had this kind of charisma. If you watch the burning up that's my favorite song by her and i want to point out when she got into the rock and roll hall of fame she had iggy pop she she asked iggy pop and the stooges to cover it at the rock and roll hall of fame so that's 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 cool. punk as fuck that's cool <laughs> but if you watch that video which looks it's not steve Barron's best work uh you know he made a lot of great videos but this video cost like five dollars probably did she's just searing through the lens with her eyes and her body like she just had it and there was just something about it that was like, she seemed like such a goddess, yet you could actually maybe be her. And I wanted, you know, I had these visions of having her desperately seeking Susan life of just like mm. wearing a, I have her jacket, by the way. I oh. showed it to Roseanne Arquette once. I have a picture when Michael in, interviewed her with me on my radio show. I wore, I didn't wear, I put my desperately seeking Susan jacket in the corner. How did you get that? Etsy. I've been looking oh. for it for years. Oh. <laughs> I just wanted to be Susan. I wanted to be Madonna. And, uh, so cute. And the honey. thing now that I'm older and, you know, I follow Madonna through the years and I actually do think her music's really good. Um, I have maybe more pop taste than you, but she's still here. When you look at all, I hate the fact that she doesn't get as much respect as she deserves because think of all the big, the biggest pop stars of the MTV era of the 1980s. Who are they? Whitney Tom Houston. Petty. Okay. Whitney Houston, Tom Petty, George Michael. Yeah. Prince, yeah, David yeah. Bowie, Michael Jackson, Madonna. What do all the others have in common? Dead. Madonna's still here. She's the most controversial thing. She said this in a in and a speech. They're mostly men. The other ones aren't they? And the ones that are alive, like Whitney no, Houston. I admire her. I mean, the way perseverance women. and her and her mm -hmm. determination to and be a woman. A in, in the, uh, I don't know about that nowadays. Maybe. But. Well, I mean, she certainly. If you, you follow her on Instagram, and then real quick, I would say tying it back to L.A. and maybe something that you're you relate to a little bit more is I can't impress upon me how much the go-go's were important to me. Oh yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. And I got the runaways though. They were even first. I was a little Free, too young. Too young. Oh, I mean, okay. I certainly okay. am a fan of them now, but the go-go's, yeah. I remember very specifically watching Casey Kasem when he used to have his Sunday morning um, countdown show. And I remember him saying that their first album, Beauty and the Beat had gone to number one and him saying the statistic that that was the first band of all women right. who wrote oh, all, their own, the Go -Go's, man. all their own music and played all their own instruments to go to number one i remember that having a huge impression on me and you know what that was more than 40 years ago and no band has done that female band has done wow, that since. wow that's really shocking They're the only one the fact they that just got in the hall of fame the fact that it took that, that long, too long too that. long man i agree i agree so that you know and and they were kind of like duran duran in the sense that you had a favorite and my favorite yeah. at that time was jane Oh, I thought she was such a cute oh, little She went on to sing with Sparks. I know that too. Know, but you know, it. I all of them meant a lot to me. And it was the same thing that I would say, just to tie it up, that I would say about Madonna, early Madonna, is you looked at the Go-Go's and they were attractive and cool, but they weren't unattainable. You could see yeah, they, they were, were like every girl girls. Gang. They were every girls. Yeah. They were dressed in rags, running around the Our Lips Are Sealed video <laughs> in a fountain. And you felt like they were a little girl gang and that maybe you yeah. could be one of them or they could be your friends. Right. And that stuck with me. And the early Madonna stuck with me for that reason. Like those two really changed my life. I'm having Kathy Valentine on next She's time. So I know. Her book. I know her book. She's a good writer too. She's she could a have a fantastic writer. Yeah. yeah. She might. Hey, who knows? I feel like there's going to be a Go Go's biopic at some point. Her, their documentary was, was really great. <sighs> well, it's been so great having you, honey. I know. We it's... could talk forever. I mean, there's so much more to talk about. I'll come back anytime you want. Yeah. The fact that, you know, you wrote one of the greatest rock memoirs of all time and then we became Thanks. friends and then that kind of led to me writing what I hope is 
Oh, it's a memoir so that good. we held in similar And it's doing esteem. so well, right? It went to number two on the Kindle list of Amazon's <laughs> rock books, right in between Led Zeppelin and Dave I know, I, I saw that. that I was screenshot. A, that screenshots I, I, are forever, Lucy man. would have flipped out. She wanted and to how, be on the charts, and she I, was, number two. And how about all the attention she got right after she passed? She had yeah. a front page in the calendar. Mm-hmm. And the, she, I'm sure, I, I just hope she saw all that, because... That meant it would have meant so much to her. I don't know if you saw, and I'm sure you did. In the book, she talked about how a lot of times, because of all of her brushes with death, there were rumors all the time that she died, and Rolling Stone would write it in the gossip pages. And she says in the book, I hope when I actually do die someday, Rolling Stone writes about it. And the day after (laughs) Mercy died, and you, you know, I still have actually the voicemail on my phone. Uh, from when you left the message because I knew she wasn't well oh. and I saw I'll, I haven't told you this I saw you call and you never call me you'll text me but you don't usually call yeah. and I saw like Pamela DeBars calling and I went uh, I know what this is I couldn't bring myself to answer the phone but anyway I still have it along the only voicemail messages I have saved on my phone is that and and mercy Mercy's. oh um but I had to call Rarebird Tyson at Rarebird yeah. the next day and great just publisher him. by the way yeah Publishing and my book after the one I'm writing now. So I called him at eight in the morning the next day and said, you know, like I said, she had signed the book contract only um, eight yeah. days before, yeah. a week before, and to let him know the news. So and he exciting. hadn't heard it yet, obviously. And yeah. um, so he, but as we're on the phone and he, he, I guess I could hear him typing. I guess he was Googling. Yeah. And he goes, have you seen rollingstone.com today? And I'm, and I'm like, oh no, what? He goes, there's God. an obituary about her. Uh, uh, and oh I, I just God. teared up and went, I mean, I'm actually really I happy. Get, I get me chills. Okay. I was like, I'm really happy. This would have made her yeah, fucking day. I know. That she's in Rolling Stone. Again, her third time. Or fourth, just as maybe. she said, she hoped that when she died, there'd yeah. be a bit to her from Rolling Stone and they hopped right on it. You know, I, I can't even read the, 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 you know, I wrote a final thing in, in your book for, mm-hmm. what, what's it called again? Postscript or something? Afterward. Afterward, yeah. And I can't even read it out loud you tried to in our book event at, know, uh, I, stories and you don't i don't think you finished the first sentence my my next column on please kill me is about her and i still haven't been able to write it yeah. but i'm about to i'm about to so i love mercy so much and mm-hmm. there's a couple songs i want to play at the end um i, I want to do a little piece of strawberry letter 23 because her true love of all was Shuggy, mm-hmm. the guy she married and had her son Lucky with. So I do want a little piece of that. Yeah. And just to round it out, I think we should end with her singing. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah, you know what? I mean, I, I perhaps I'm biased in saying this and no diss to you or any of the GTOs, but I would say my favorite two songs on the Permanent Damage album are, are hers. hers. I mean, you know, say what you will about, say, well, look, some of the other ones weren't really songs. They were more like sketches or skits yes, or well, little spoken vignettes, words, yeah. spoken word things. But she had two songs, obviously, assisted by some greats like Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck and Lil George. But I mean, you know, say what you will about her singing ability. But I think she had like some melodic instincts. I feel like she could. I do. <laughs> she thought she did. <laughs> I feel that if she had worked on it. Oh, God. And, I, and she talks about in the book that she should have taken more advantage of the time when she was living with Johnny Otis. Yeah. And all yeah. the revolving door of who's who amazing yeah. musicians there. I feel like maybe. I feel she had some melodic instincts. Oh, she definitely had melodic instincts. Mm -hmm. She did have, though, quite a drug habit, you know, and and that did get in the way of a lot of her, you know, but she lived quite a life. And it's all in the book. And Lindsay really captured it. So please read Permanent Damage, you guys. And let's end with Mercy's. I have a paintbrush in my hand to color a triangle. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks.
Well, that was so great. I just, you know, I, she's another person I'm going to have to have back because there's so much of her life that's fascinating. We barely touched on. It was a lot about my darling Mercy. And like I mentioned earlier, please listen to my Mercy podcasts because they're so wonderful. It's such a slice of life. There's no one like her in this world. And I shared so much with her. I miss her so much. Um, I am an author of many books, as some of you know. Uh, please buy them all. They're all on Amazon. They're on Audible, you know, and I also have a website, PamelaDevarOfficial.com, where I sell all kinds of good stuff. I have T-shirts now. My son designed a I'm with the band T-shirt, and they're very cool. So get yourself one or two. <laughs> I got men's now, so get your boyfriend one or buy one yourself. Please, please, please. And um, I have a, a column, pleasekillme.com. So please come back next time. Bye. You've been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. Produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Find all the Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Pantheon Podcasts. Rock and Roll Archaeology on Instagram and Pantheon Pods on Twitter. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.